Hi everyone, welcome to this bonus episode of I Am. Our guest this week is Muji, and he and I actually spoke for an additional hour on top of what we released in the main guest episode. It was a fantastic experience, and part of that hour, Muji honoured me by sharing a beautiful story of how he came to be where he is today, talking of his experience with religion, growing up, and going into all kinds of detail about two particularly poignant moments in his life, one in Brixton and the other in Rishikesh in India. It's a beautiful backdrop to the main guest episode, and I really wanted to put it in, in there for anyone who was interested in understanding his experience a little bit further. It's 20 minutes long. It's a fast-track version of key moments in his life. Uh, but even from this small time together, I think you get a real sense of the richness of the journey he's had and what an incredible person he is too. But certainly for me, understanding how he came to have a deeper knowledge, understanding and connection to a higher experience and dimension of life, it was crucial. I hope you enjoy it. In my lifetime, there's been times that in that psychological grip, I felt so important as a person. And even I've become so important to myself as a person. And yet I can feel the emptiness in terms of whether it be just the depth of experience. It feels like an absence with that person that there's an absence. And that's so powerful. I'm interested when you say about sharing, just even however long you want to spend on this. So feel free. But just as a background, when you say you're sharing where's your experience happened how are you sharing about this and what what's happened in your life to allow you to have this mm. perspective and this privileged you know uh, i guess stance okay i'll, I'll put that part of it as as well as i can no because i grew up also in jamaica a very christian oriented country you know and um growing up we attend church and, and you know jamaica also it, it has been said over and over have more churches per square mile than anywhere else in the world. Right. And I don't mean necessarily impressive structures, but sometimes people have churches in their houses or their community halls and so on, wherever they can meet. It, it might surprise some people because at the same time, we seem to have quite an impressive you know, history as a violent country. Sometimes these things, they go together in some strange <laughs> mix, you know? But uh, I, I left Jamaica when I was 16 and plus, you know, and arrived in the UK, lived with my mom. I had not known her consciously because when she left, I was only a child, maybe one year old. So joined her then. We grew up, she was very much established in a Christian community there. That was a very good cushion for me to land in, actually, because so much of arriving in London from Jamaica was so different for me, you know, not just the weather, but the whole culture, the vibe, everything felt different in those days, 1969. She belonged to a Seventh-day Adventist Christian community, so they are very closely knit. So I felt very much embraced by that community. No? But uh, having spent time there, then going to school, going to college and so on, at some point I gradually drifted away from the regular attendance of church. No? So I went to attend the church less frequently. And then when I did have the occasion to go, like there was somebody's funeral or wedding or something like that, you'd invite them back to church. And then I, 
I felt the, el- the elders, you know, sometimes the women particularly, they'll come and they start to feel your beard and go, what is this and all this kind of stuff. And you need to get rid of that. And you're such a good looking chap, you know, and you know, why you spoil you? So I thought, well, I can't bear this, you know. So again, uh, just drifted off. No? Now, um, as the years unfolded and like that, I was not so much, I started to work on the street as a street artist and this kind of way. We rolled up to about 1987. No. I happened to be living in a place in Brixton, in London. And one day I'm, I was setting up an exhibition to support an exhibition, art exhibition, local one. And when I came back, my partner, she said, oh, somebody came earlier today and knocked on the door and said that he had noticed some stained glass that I'd made, a panel of stained glass in the front window. And knocked and said, you know, this looks like a more recent piece. Who, you know, who made this piece of glass? And she said, oh, it's my partner, but he's not here right now. And he said, oh, I'd like to meet him because I'm also making stained glass. So I just I said, okay, fine, I brushed that aside. And indeed, he did come. And we met at the door and introduced himself, Michael. I don't know if you've heard this story before, but he introduced himself. My name is Michael. I live very nearby. And also, I'm an artist also. I work with stained glass and I notice your glass. And we got through that type of talk. But quickly, somewhere, he introduced that, look, you know, I'm, I live around the corner from you. Actually, I live in a church. And not a church, but in my, he had a small apartment downstairs in a Victorian house, very rundown, simple house. And he said, we meet regularly there for church. He said, I'm a practicing Christian and like that. And I don't know quite how it got into that, but that became the tone of our discussion, largely led by him, you know. And I found that I, I felt very comfortable with him. And he was very much sharing from his experience as a Christian and he called, like a disciple of Christ kind of Christian, not so much the strong religious kind of Christians, like yeah. that spirit-based service. And we kept these kind of conversations. They were rolling on and I was feeling very comfortable with these conversations. I found there were questions arising in me that I'd not really put to anybody before. But with him and uh, just the openness of his presence, I didn't feel like he was trying to convert me to something, just talking. We got very close in these conversations, and maybe after a few months, on one Sunday he came by with another friend, and we were four people sitting in the sitting room. And uh, at the end of talking, I don't even remember specifically what we are speaking about. But on this particular afternoon, as he was leaving, I said to him, Michael, you know, next time you pray, will you pray for me? And he said, sure, but why not now? And I liked that. And I said, oh, okay. And he stepped over to where I was sitting and I stood up with him and he put his hand on my head and he prayed. Again, I cannot remember word for word, no, but yeah, a sort of beautiful prayer. And at the end of his prayer, short prayer, myself, I found saying a few words also, just like, please, please uh, reveal in me what I need to do. I was very open at this point. And again, a short prayer, and at the end of which, he said, it was such a nice feeling. And we hugged at the front door, and says, okay, thank you, Michael. Thank you for coming. Thank you for this evening. And he said, hey, see you, see you around. He left, and I was on my own. 
he and his friend left. My partner went in the kitchen. I went and sat by myself. I had this most wonderful feeling of peace and spaciousness. Okay, so noticeably, you know, and I felt so good. The evening was approaching, like being late and so on. But somehow it was in my mind. I don't want to go to sleep. I want to stay in this feeling for as long as I could. Because the feeling was that, okay, as because we've had similar feelings going to church, but at a certain point it, it wears off. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to sit this out. I'm not going to go to bed. And so I stayed up as long as I could. And of course, sleep took over at some point. And in the morning, I woke up quite early, more early than usual. And there was a little crack in the curtains, and the sun was coming through. And I was sitting there, found myself awake. I don't even remember getting up. I just remember just being awake, and just the sunbeam coming through. But I was more captivated by it, like like I never seen, noticed the sun before, no. And all the little dust flakes inside, you know, like this. But I was just sitting there. But the funny thing was that all of this was like inside me. It was like a very internal feeling, not just like I'm looking at the sun. All the experience felt very present, you know, very internal with me. Such joy and such a deep peace. And here's the incredible thing. It has never gone away. Oh, wow. It's 1987. It's <laughs> never gone away. And a lot of, a lot of water has flown under the bridge, but this peace has remained with me. You see? Now, to forward up a little from there, I was moving around in, in, in this state. Also, I, in between that, I got a job teaching at a local college, art and so on. And these things just kind of flowed into the background. And at some point, I was six years in this kind of blessed kind of state, moving about. I started just moving a lot on my own. I found myself walking a lot also. I was walking from Brixton up to the West End, which is a good maybe six or seven miles, but something I was not used to doing so much, just walking by myself in the evenings particularly. would just walk up to the West End, walk around, just enjoy walking. So that's how it went on for quite some time. And there was such a strong urge to wherever this is going to just get there, you know, more than, you know, let that serve my life. I never encountered any experience that I was so totally surrendered to it. I said, you know, I want to go all the way, wherever this is going, going all the way. I had a very strong sense of that God was inside my heart. You know? There's something I need to tell you, if this story is going to be more relevant, is that I started to go to the meeting house where his Michael was living, and I go to their meetings, and there was like a small church group, mostly young people. And he, I thought he was the preacher, but he was not the preacher. There was another guy who was preaching there. And I went there. It was very dynamic, and there was people fainting and all kind of stuff like that. And I, I'm okay with that. I grew up with that. But that teacher there, that preacher, I was not comfortable with his way of expressing. And he, at that time, it was the early days when Muslims were showing up in our town, and we were not used to them. You know? But he had a kind of thing that you know, Muslims were not 
they were not the right people. There was something not good about them, and all that. that didn't sit right with me. And it seemed like he had a very charismatic and very strong influence over the group. But I found myself somehow just sitting inside this internal space. I was there, no. And from one week to another, I found myself from being in the room to being by the door to being in the hall. The hallway, <laughs> and then you know, next thing I just left. I didn't go back. I didn't feel comfortable because by that time it was very clear that God is here. That was what I discovered. God is here, and and then I could learn about what uh, from a lot of things from them. But that wherever I went, it was here. So I surrendered even more deeply. That you've got to take this over because I don't feel comfortable with this place. Places I'm going to. So asked to be guided like that. So I felt that was very significant mm. for me because many people, when they first start, like become a Christian or a Muslim or whatever you come, it's not uncommon for people to get a little bit of Christian indoctrination or they may call it training and so on. And I felt I needed some space just to be with this because this was the most strong. So I started to move a lot on my own. So that then linked up to what I said earlier. I started to walk a lot just feel very solid somehow inside that wherever I went, like God was God is here with me, moving like that. No? So that's how it started. And then at one point, now what I repeated, what I said earlier, I repeat that I, I wanted to speed things up, like whatever the destination is, like bring it on, I'm ready, I'm just going in. For <laughs> I tried one bookshop in the local town nearby me, Stratum is called, one bookshop I saw, it was called a Christian bookshop called Mana. And I went in there one time. I was not used to going into, I was not used to reading things. And I tried to look through some of them. I saw things, angels, and about these things, and that thing, and this thing, and discussions, and so on. And at one point, I just felt like, like as though all the words in all the books were kind of talking in my head. But it wasn't pleasant. It just felt like a noise. And I just beat it, you know, it came out of that place. And it wasn't until maybe another six months or so, I found myself in the west end of London, in Leicester Square. There was a little alley. There's a bookshop called Kin's Bookshop. And they deal with esoteric books and spiritual religions from around the world. And I went in there, went downstairs, and um, it says, like, Indian philosophy and religion. I was something attracted to that. And then I saw a book. I would always go for the thinnest books. <laughs> okay? Yeah, yeah, because I go. Before this, I'd say, the, I read the Bible from beginning to end, actually. Wow. I couldn't stop. I just was something, this neediness, like I was on this. And that was it. And then, so I went into the bookshop and I looked for the thinnest one. There was one book, it was a small booklet with a picture of the Sri Ramana Maharishi. I mean, you may know of Ramana Maharishi, the sage from. South India. And I was struck by this um, portrait of this face. Just a calmness, you know, like this. And uh, it was the first thing I saw. I think it was called Nanyar, you know, it was like self inquiry or something. Not the book for me to pick, I gotta tell you. So <laughs> looked at it and I opened and started to look through, and it was on self inquiry. And it wasn't connecting for me. It just felt very, very mental. So I was not attracted to it. But I was very attracted to this picture, you see. So I actually felt like going up to the counter and say, I think there have been some mistake with the book that somebody put the wrong 
cover on this book on the wrong words yeah. yeah but I didn't do that I just felt like you know like this like no this is not this face is so tranquil so full of love and it's radiating this sort of presence but the inside wasn't appealing to me so I put it down and I, I went along and I saw another book that had some like gospel so that attracted me it said the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna it was another Bengali saint the link word was gospel so I picked it out and it was a fairly thick book and I just sort of flicked through it and every page I touched maybe four or five pages looked reading the words and they were just it was I mean it was very different from me because uh, Ramakrishna was a devotee of an Indian goddess called Kali very very fierce kind of goddess so not so much in the language visual language of my upbringing but his words and what he was sharing was so potent for me. And I somehow just took it to got this book. And I started reading this book. And I couldn't put it down. I didn't want it to finish also. It's a big book. I didn't want it to finish because it was just like soul food at the highest level for me. But that caught me, that an appetite for India. And I said, well, I would love to go to this place. I knew he was not there in the body anymore. But the book was written by a devotee, a follower of Sri Ramakrishna called Mahendranath Gupta. He just signed his name M. It was so beautifully conveying the life, what it was like to live in the physical presence of a saint. And I was so gripped by it that somehow the atmosphere created inside me of the place was a strong pull, and I felt if ever I had a chance, I'll go to India one day. I want to see what this place is. And it was six years from the beginning of making Michael until I had the opportunity to travel to India. And how that came about is that, I don't know if you read anything about some of my background, my elder sister was shot by the police in 1985. It's a famous case called the shooting of Cherry Gross. It was a time when there's a lot of conflict in London, particularly police and you know, Afro-Caribbean people, you know, this kind of thing was going, a lot of stop and search and lot, lot, lots of things was happening there. Yeah. And uh, they came looking for her son, kind of petty criminal record, and they were bu- busting in her house where she was asleep with her children, they used to sleep all together in a big bed, and she was shot, basically. And she was shot here, and it went to her back. We thought it was she was shot twice, but it was one shot. This was big news, by the way. You can always look at how big news. You can imagine, yeah. And I went to, to see her in hospital because we didn't know. What do you do about things like that? I mean, like, like the place was very quiet. My mother had called me on a Sunday morning and just told me, you know, half asleep on my side, come down to Normandy Road. You know, Cherry has been shot, you know. I said, what? She said, you've been shot. Come, just come, come. So I got on and drove down there, arrived at the door. The place was very quiet, peaceful Sunday morning. Just two policemen sitting out, outside. I went up and they said, can I help you? And I said, no. And this incident where my sister's shot or something. So I went inside and it was a very surreal place. Like the children were there and it was, you know, it's very edgy. This police lady was there putting on her hat on some of the kids. And it just seemed like, whoa, what's going on? So they told me where she was and I went to the hospital where she was. I think it was St. Thomas. I arrived there, I went to see her in there. And she was very much alive, and I sat and spoke with her. We came back in the car, the family, we drove back to Brixton, which is maybe four miles away. We came back into Brixton, 
And we were talking amongst us, you know, what do we, what do you do? What do you do? We, we don't know anything about politics. We know nothing about these things. But we arrived back at our house, and when, as we were driving into our house, there was just full of journalists, photographers, and police. And here. So, wow, yeah. what's going on? And then as I came in, as we came out of the car, then the full weight of what was happening kind of came on my mom, and she just broke down, and my sisters, they broke down. And, but I was the only one kind of like, I was okay. I was not breaking down. And they came and talked to me, and I could talk with them. I later found that it was unusual for them because we were not asking for any revenge or nothing like that. We just said, let's just see what happened. And, but that incident, no, my sister did not die, but it started all these Brixton riots of 1985. And she she died many years later, some years ago. So when she moved from that place, she had to move, the whole family had to move, went, went to another place. I used to go and visit her there. And uh, she grew up in a part of Jamaica that I know also from the countryside, you know, in the Blue Mountains and, you know, like this. And she lived in a place where there was a bathroom. There was no, it was just very, no windows, nothing like this there. So her daughter asked me, would you come and paint some pictures on the wall for her because I was making paintings. And I went and I did these things. I painted like a jungle scene from the Caribbean, mm -hmm. blah, 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 and did some stained glass and some things like that. And at the end, this is all going to come together. So at, mm -hmm. at, the, at the end, she actually, she gave me 3,000 pounds. I'd never seen money like that before. And within four weeks, I was on the plane to India. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it called, came back in. Yeah. And, uh, I flew to India. And then I knew nothing about India, done no research. That's very typical for me, no research, just went there. And at one time in the hotel, I saw bus tours to Rishikesh. And I'd heard a little bit of Rishikesh. There's a holy place, so I went there. I was in uh, Rishikesh. And while I was there one day, I met some people who felt that they knew me and wanted to, said that they'd met me. I said, no, no, I'm just fresh in India. You've not met me, and uh, like this. They were asking for some guidance for a hotel. I knew nothing about it. Yeah. So an Indian friend who was walking with me came to the car and gave them some guidance. And they were saying, oh, but I know this man. They were pointing. I said, no, you don't know me like that. And then when I walked back up to my hotel, the same people were getting out. And then, then we sort of met there. And they go, oh, you see, there's something. We have some connection, this kind of stuff. <laughs> and they said to me, listen, there's something really nice about this. Can we meet for dinner here at the hotel later on? So I was fresh there only a few days. I said, okay, I'll meet with you. And uh, I met with them, and they told me about Papaji. They said, uh, our master spent a lot of time here in Rishikesh in some years ago. He loved this place. He used to go and meditate on the Ganga and so on. And we just had this weekend. We thought we'd come spend, go to some of the places to go. And have you not heard of him? I said, no, I've not heard of him. So I said, hang on. The wife went off and got a book and showed me this book, Wake Up and Roar. And I said, yeah, okay, looking through, being very polite. I didn't yeah. particularly, you know. I said, oh, it seems interesting like this. And they said, we are leaving tomorrow to go back to a place called Lucknow, where the master lived. And he says, you know, we have a space in the car. And... Uh, I said, I'm going to look around. Give me the address. <laughs> Give me the address and I'll go. And they gave me the address. And as soon as they left, I felt somehow that 
my time in Rishikesh had come to an end. I should have gone with them or something. Wow. But it wasn't until another three weeks that I went to Varanasi, then I went to Rishikesh, and I met Papaji. And Papaji is a direct disciple of Sri Ramana Maharshi. So this is where it came in, and I started to go to the satsangs. Satsangs is a gathering place where people come in search of truth, more to do with consciousness. So I, I, I went there, and I recognized his presence, that he has a, a sort of power, beautiful power, very mm, peaceful, but just something very attractive to me. And I went and stayed there. So I spent quite a few months with Papaji, and then one time I felt to write him a letter. I wrote him a letter, and he called me up in those days. He called you up, he went up there, and he began to read my letter and talk to me. But a lot of resistance came up inside. All this anger came, and I felt at that moment, you know, okay, that's it, I'm leaving this place, I've had enough of this place. And I went home, and I packed my things, still full of fire inside. And it was a hot day in Lucknow. I went out for a walk. I sat down for a while, and a lady came up who was in the same satsang, and she said, I enjoyed your letter to Papaji and stuff, but I was still boiling, you know, like this. And she said, No, it was really good. And, you know, Master answered really beautiful to you. And, you know, like, wow, you're so blessed. And But I was full of rage and this kind of like, whoa, like he'd insulted me or something, you know? That's how your ego is. <laughs> so after that, I left to go away. And as I started walking, maybe about 20, 20 meters away, Everything vanished like this. It was an amazing thing. Like I vanished, you know. Can I explain what that means? Yeah. And just like I couldn't find myself. <laughs> I know it's very strange. I could not find who I was anymore, who I was in myself. And I looked at my hands and I, there was nobody in there, like, you know. It's a crazy kind of thinking, but I, there was nobody in my body. It was a very unusual feeling. I could look out and I could see the scene and there were the rickshaws going past and quite a busy path, but everything was in silence for me. I could not find myself. But I was not worried. It was this amazing peace. And then what happened is that shortly after, this few moments, it's like the feeling of Papa Jesus filled everywhere for me. It's almost I don't know how to explain that. If I, it was his physical form or whatever he was, like I'd never really experienced anything like that because I used to say that in the beginning I I could not I was not learning a lot from Papaji because of his way of speaking and I was not used to that non-physical dialogue. It was more about beingness and consciousness, not words I was so used to. But in that moment, I understood in a funny way. Then I felt like Papaji filled everywhere of me and everywhere like that. And in in that moment, I um, kind of fell in love with him in a way. I recognized that I need to be here. I really need to be here. So I did not leave, and I stayed another little while there with him. And then at some point I had a feeling to go down to Ramana Ashram. I don't know if you know about these places. That's in the south of India, where the early picture I'd seen. And I felt to go there, and I asked Papaji, I want to go there. And he said, go and come back. 
So I went and spent another few months at a place called Tiruvannamalai in the south of India, at the holy mountain of Arunachala, where the sage had lived, the master of Papaji, and I spent some time there. And yeah, I, I feel to share this with you. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative, the executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. 